0: Welcome to the Codcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. Danielle Allen is a scholar of Athenian democracy who has decided that she may have something to offer to the practice of democracy in 21st century Massachusetts. The Harvard professor announced in December that she was launching an exploratory run for governor, and she joins us today on the podcast. Danielle Allen, welcome.
1: Thanks, Michael. Good to be here.
0: So you embarked on this exploratory run in December, uh, four months into your exploration. What have you learned?
1: I have learned that there is an appetite in the Commonwealth to set a higher standard Mm -hmm. of leadership. I have learned that a lot of people see that we've been settling for a status quo where too many are left out, too many are experiencing disconnection or isolation or abandonment. We saw this profoundly last March when, in two weeks, we went from having the least unemployment in the country to having the most unemployment in the country, and that really reflects the separation between folks in our knowledge economy who could just roll up the drawbridges and start telecommuting, and folks in the services economy where the bottom just fell out from under. And the lack of access to security and opportunity for so many, it's not just something that happened this past winter, it's a longer standing problem. And I think I'm seeing around the Commonwealth an appetite to address that as we rebuild prosperity to work, to really achieve security and connection to the ladder of opportunity for everyone.
0: And um, you're, uh, you're a scholar of democracy, as I, as I pointed out, um, yet you know, sort of turning to the world of a practitioner seems like a very different thing. Can you just talk a little bit about that decision of yours uh, to sort of jump out of academia, and I know from your background that it's not as if you haven't uh, sort of throughout your career uh, tried to engage uh, with the world around you, but uh, obviously running to be the governor of the state is kind of engaging in a, in a whole different way.
1: It's, it's true, Michael. I've always been a practitioner of democracy first, and I've been a scholar of democracy to support my work as a practitioner of democracy. So I'm from a family with a long-standing commitment to service and engagement. I have great-grandparents on my mom's side that fought for women's right to vote at the turn of the century in Michigan. And on my dad's side, my granddad helped found one of the first NAACP chapters in Northern Florida. My dad ran for office in California. My aunt did as well. I worked in their campaigns. I was a regional field organizer in the 07-08 Obama campaign. I've always believed that the nonprofit sector was a place from which we could make important differences for democracy. So from the university context, I've helped build adult education programs. I've helped build civic education programs. I've helped lead philanthropies in the directions of equity and racial justice in their work. And so for me, as I said, I've always been a practitioner of democracy, of empowerment, of connecting communities in order to empower people. You need ideas to do that well. So universities have been a good place for me for nourishing my work as a practitioner of democracy.
0: So it's kind of been the, the laboratory you've, where you've sort of stirred, stirred things up and, and tried to sort of uh, explore ideas, and, 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 but then sort of really the, the real the proof or test of things is, is kind of out in the world for you.
1: Yes, exactly. I, mean, I think the simple fact is we are at a transformative moment in our country. We all know the history of this country. We were founded on principles of freedom and equality, yet those principles were limited in their application to some. And it's really only since 1965 and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act that we committed to a principle of inclusion for our constitutional democracy. A whole host of challenges come with that as we figure out how to reorganize ourselves to achieve a truly inclusive constitutional democracy. We do learn some of what we need just through practice, through experimenting, through trying this and trying that. But the truth is, we also need research and thinking about exactly what does an inclusive constitutional democracy look like. So that's what I've been working on. And I've been so grateful to partner with people in political economy, with people in health and the like to really answer that question. And I think lots of practical ideas have been moving out into the world. I put a lot of effort into trying to help build public policy paradigms last year for COVID response that would bring testing and tracing everywhere with the health equity lens in mind. Also really building on things like faith communities to get contact tracing up and running and and thinking about the trust building that you need to have that work. Um, There's a whole range of practical applications that have already come out of the work I've been fortunate to do.
0: So it was just exactly a year ago last April that a report was released uh, that that you helped spearhead uh, through a center at Harvard looking at how the country could reopen safely and effectively, but it really charted a much more ambitious plan than we've seemed to have embarked on nationally or even at the state level. Is that, uh, again, sort of something that sort of underscores your kind of vision for for how we should govern and that points to sort of shortcomings in, in how we are handling things right now?
1: I had a deep sense of shock when the pandemic got going at how easy it was for some people just to imagine abandoning others. So there was that loose talk you'll remember about older people, you know, maybe it's just their time. We don't need to worry about protecting them. Let's just keep the economy open. And then there were the ways we pushed essential workers back so aggressively without testing and access to ppe and i just could not believe we were doing this thought it was really mistaken that we were taking a line that there was a trade-off between protecting health and protecting the economy so i did pull together a big network of people folks in public health clinicians economists and the like to figure out what was the policy that would let us simultaneously work to protect health and to protect the economy And that did require a real ramp up of investment in testing, contact tracing, and the like. It's true that we did not get as far as we wanted last spring, although we did ultimately get our policy into the Biden-Harris COVID response. So they did embrace the concept of a pandemic testing board and the supply chain work that we were advocating for to equip ourselves to really suppress this virus. So yes, I mean, the core idea is that there are some things we have to do together, that we have to have public goods investments that you can't just expect the sort of market necessarily to deliver all the results you need. The market's powerful. We get a lot of value from the market for sure. But you have to see those places where the job is to govern toward a public goods investment. And that was, I think, the critical thing we all collectively needed last winter and spring.
0: And how do you sort of rate, how do you rate uh, how Massachusetts has done, how Governor Baker has done in managing the pandemic?
1: Look, you know, I think we all are really grateful for the fact that we're coming to the light at the end of the tunnel on the pandemic. I've got my vaccine shot scheduled finally just for this weekend. And, you know, that brings a great sense of relief to so many of us. And I think we have to recognize just the human experience of where we are, that we do all feel better. That said, I do think there's a lot we could have done a lot better as a state. My first thing I would point to was a slower than necessary ramp up of investment in our biotech sector around issues of testing and really building out that testing infrastructure to support not just Massachusetts, not just the Northeast, but the whole country. I think that we did not maximally take advantage of that opportunity for actually investing in our own economy and protecting the health of the country as a whole. I think the second thing I would point to is that we could have supported our schools much more effectively. We really needed to be rolling out in a really comprehensive and coordinated way, best practices that could help people move toward that in-person learning faster. So there did need to be more guidance, more support um, around PPE, around training for infection prevention and control uh, throughout uh, our K through 12 system. I think that was a real fumble mm-hmm.
0: and uh just before we d- sort of dig in more on some of the issues the state's facing um go back a little bit and help us understand a little bit more who you are and your background you talked sort of a, a little bit about your your family's long history of activism but um talk a little bit about your own your own background you grew up in california if i'm right Your father. Uh, uh, is also an academic or was an academic. Mm-hmm. Um, what was, what was, what was that like? And, 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 and how did that lead you, uh, in college to, uh, study, uh, the classics, something that, uh, you know, is not, is not probably the, the major most, uh, most young people are pursuing these days when they land in college.
1: That's true. And it certainly isn't. So it's true that people do generally these days know me first as a policy expert who focuses on health and education, jobs and justice, and they know I'm a professor at Harvard. People often don't know that I am from an incredibly big family that has experienced the full range of challenge and opportunity in our society. So issues of addiction, homelessness, incarceration, Domestic violence. I have lived through all of those things with my family members, and we are a family that believes in people keeping people connected, empowering people, putting the floor back under people so they can move forward again and keep everybody moving forward together. So, to make that really concrete, my dad grew up with eleven brothers and sisters in northern Florida. About half of them moved to Southern California, and we used to have gigantic family gatherings. You know, so kids playing football outside in the street and Grown ups watching football inside, and always more pies than people, but also always room at the table for the person who was in trouble or was missing or not making it then. And just to give you one example: I remember the night my uncle Robert came late um, after dinner. I didn't know him well; he'd only made it to one uh, of the big family gatherings, and so I remember him showing up with you know skinny and threadbare clothes and feeling real sense of of worry and concern what was going to happen and the strong sense of, you know, my parents, of course, brought him in, worked hard to help put the floor back under him. He was struggling um, with issues of addiction. And the thing that was most important about that, the thing that made the biggest impression on me as a child was the way in which my parents helped without judgment. That was the really critical thing. And so throughout my growing up, it was in that context of seeking to connect and empower, moving people forward together, By the time I got to college, I mean, honestly, I think it's an accident that I ended up studying classics. I took a course on Athenian democracy uh, with, you know, a professor who to this day is one of the best teachers I ever had. But I remember reading in that class just pages and pages of speeches from law courts in ancient Athens. And I knew something was weird, something felt really strange about what I was reading. I finally put my finger on it and I raised my hand and said to my professor, um, excuse me, professor, did the Athenians not have prisons? They never seem to mention imprisonment or incarceration in any of these law speeches. What's going on? And he said, well, that would make a great dissertation topic. And the next thing I knew, I was digging into research about punishment in other societies. But what had happened there was, you know, I grew up in California in the 70s and 80s, and prisons were just growing everywhere around me. It was impossible not to register the just increase in size of punishment and the the justice system. So there I was a kid putting my finger on the fact that this other world was just so different from our own, that prison didn't take up a huge amount of space in the mental universe. And I wanted to know how that was possible. What, what were the differences and the like? So that's how I ended up as a classics major was really being curious about this world that was so very different from our own. And I've also
0: read that your, your, um, you know, a big believer in, you know, I guess you might say sort of the universal themes that cross over so many cultures that different bodies of knowledge or traditions can offer. And I, I wonder, this is kind of a little bit afield from the race for governor, but it's just Happens that I was just reading this week that Howard University in Washington is disbanding its classics department, and I only read it be, know about it because I read a, a an opinion piece by Cornell West and a and a co-author just decrying this move as a as a real loss. Uh, do you kind of share their view that uh, that the that this kind of retrenchment uh, that we see in this in particular in this case at Howard, but in a lot of universities away from these classic texts, is is uh, that we're we're losing something.
1: It is a loss. It is a loss. No, for sure. I mean, the depth of philosophical traditions, the depths of ethical traditions from across time and across the globe is just one of our greatest human treasuries. That doesn't mean it's not full of error. Yes, it's full of error. But as I see it, our job is not to abandon material because of the error, but rather to understand the error and then to correct for those errors. So it's neither the case that we should throw everything out nor the case that we should just accept that inheritance and sort of be grateful for its existence. For me, it's rather that people, human beings, work really hard to figure out the meaning of justice, how to have a fair world, and we need the help we can get from these traditions.
0: And and um, talk a little bit more also about the ways that you've kind of crossed over or kind of married, you know, these two. Parts of your life, the sort of scholar and the and the practitioner. And one thing that I had read was that um, uh, when you were at the University of Chicago, that um, along with the scholarship and work you did with students there, that you taught some evening uh, classes to to folks in the community. Um, How did that come about and what was your thinking there and what did you kind of get out of that? I'm sure they got a lot out of your classes, but I'm thinking you got something from that experience as well.
1: Sure, no, absolutely. Um, Well, look, you know, in the years between 1980 and the present, this country has lived through two extraordinary phenomena that are connected to each other. We've seen this extraordinary growth of income and wealth inequality, and an extraordinary growth of incarceration. And we can point to the numbers and the graphs and the charts and the like, but the fact is that these changes have also manifested in the lives of all of us. And for me, the way these changes have manifest is to watch worlds pull apart from each other. So there I found myself in Chicago, teaching at the University of Chicago, these kids getting an amazing access to this extraordinary education. And then all around me on the south side of Chicago, All kinds of folks struggling with no path between them and the same kind of opportunity that the kids I taught in the day had. That just felt to me deeply wrong. So what I've been trying to do my entire life is to make sure that we knit ourselves back together as a society and that the best possible kinds of opportunities are available to all. So I did help working with Illinois Humanities Council to build an adult education program for low-income adults, and the purpose of this was to give them access to the same quality of education through a night course program as students at the University of Chicago were having in the day. And that was, in some sense, a small program, a small effort to put our society back together again, but it does capture the basic direction of my effort and hope
0: and you talked about sort of these two huge uh sort of themes of of growing inequality and incarceration i mean it sort of strikes me that those uh both draw in sort of the issue of race in a very in a very big way and we are of course now talking just after uh you know the country's been through this very uh public and and prominent uh sort of Discussion and focus on race, you know, in the in the in particular with the the trial of the Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, uh, convicted of in the killing of George Floyd. How do you sort of uh, think about the moment we're at in terms of this sort of the the long sort of march for racial justice, you know, kind of colliding with what's just been this barrage of of uh, of incidents and moments uh, in recent days and years that seem to have people questioning really, you know, where we're at and how far we've really come?
1: Well, the simple fact is that over the last 50 years in this country, we have built an increasingly penal, increasingly intense system of justice, legal system. Sometimes we'll call it criminal legal system. And we have seen an increasing use of police force, increasing Weaponization, the addition of military tactics and weaponry to policing, this incredible intensification of the use of force against the people of this country. At the same time that we've seen that, the in- greatest intensity of that has been brought to bear on communities of color, without any question. And that has produced a devastating trap for people of color across the board. It's been a creator of fear it has meant that institutions that are supposed to deliver public safety are not delivering public safety for all. And there's a real sense in which institutions that are supposed to be about safety make a lot of people feel less safe. um, And that's something that we need to um, tackle directly. A key part of changing the dynamic on that is to be able to hold people accountable for excessive violence. So the verdict in the Chauvin trial for murder was critical to establishing that foundation for accountability. The hope is we can build from that key moment of accountability to a broader transformation and to a reimagining of what public safety means so that we are really thinking about the safety of everyone and every community.
0: And, um, can you talk a little about your own political thinking and and maybe its evolution? I I I read that there's actually a pretty conservative strain of political thought in your in your family and that um not surprisingly maybe that's the sort of environment you sort of grew up in and you uh even in uh, your college years had interned at the the National Review, the famous uh conservative journal, but uh but how did how did your thinking change and evolve? Sure. Over over those years.
1: No, thank you for that question. So as I said, I, I grew up in a very politically engaged family. And one of the most powerful memories of my childhood was just vigorous arguments between my dad, a Reagan, conservative, ran for Senate as a Republican in California, and my aunt, Roslyn, who ran for office in the Peace and Freedom Party. And I loved these arguments, the fights that they had trying to really define equality, define emancipation. They had very different takes on the place of the economy in that question. And so the, the wonderful thing about having these two smart, energetic, engaged people taking different positions is that it gave me space to think for myself. And so, yes, it's true. I did arrive at college as a conservative and in that regard was choosing the direction that my father had taught me in many ways. And the pivotal change point came for me in that summer that I interned at National Review Magazine. There are a couple of different dimensions of it. I'll just share one. That was the period in the early 90s when the income inequality data were starting to emerge. People were trying to make sense of it. And I just remember sitting in an editorial meeting one morning as people were chewing over the data. And I just thought they were making really terrible mistakes in their analysis of it. Um, There was a lot of effort in some sense to sort of, as I saw it, wish the data away in the first instance to try to sort of pull every which way to make it disappear. It wouldn't disappear. It was a real phenomenon. And so then the next way of thinking about it was to suggest that Well, income inequality, like this is not a problem as long as future generations will be rising, there'll be mobility. Of course, as we know, that expected direction didn't materialize. We've seen declines in mobility in the subsequent years. But there was a deeper problem with that that I saw, which was, it was basically to say, it's okay if you're screwed now, because maybe your grandkids are going to be okay. And I just didn't think that that approach to time and temporality was the right approach. I think we have a responsibility in the present to the quality of life and opportunity that people have in the present. And for me, that was a real pivot point moment, real change of direction. And I began to really dig into the question of how to achieve that fairness, that comprehensive opportunity in the present, given the kinds of inequities and disparities that we do have um, in the country.
0: And um, talk a little bit about how you view, maybe, you know, in that context or others, Massachusetts, I guess, the, you know, the, the thing I often wonder is, are we sort of a, a, a progressive beacon or something of a throwback? And, you know, we we were the first state to legalize same-sex marriage. We, we laid the groundwork for the Affordable Care Act with our own state-based uh, plan, yet we're you know we're the only state where all three branches of government claim exemption from the public records law. There are other sort of examples on that side of the ledger too, where people kind of wonder whether we're really this kind of shining example uh of of sort of democratic self-governance um, how do you How do you square all that and and how do you sort of what's your sort of analysis of of the body politic of Massachusetts?
1: I think Massachusetts is a state that has led, it has put Markers out there for what true democracy is about. And that goes all the way back through our history. You gave two contemporary examples, but it also includes being the first state to abolish enslavement. It includes being the state that introduced public schools and really introduced public health, the first state to ratify direct election of senators. So I think we have a deep history of leading. We have a capacity to lead for sure with our resources of just extraordinary human beings throughout this common and wealth as well as our prosperity. And I think we've let that leadership mantle slip in recent years, in all honesty, I think we've sort of settled into a kind of status quo, you know, B plus is good enough. And I think that's not okay. I think we should be setting a standard. There are w- real questions in the country right now about what it means to protect the right to vote. I think we really need to be locking in the voter access provisions that we achieved during the pandemic and really reaching out to empower voters across the Commonwealth. That should be, we should set the standard for what full empowerment looks like. I think we should also be really moving forward. The 28th Amendment on campaign finance set a standard for what taking money out of politics looks like. And yes, I do think that there are issues of transparency that we also need to take up and ask ourselves the question of what would it take for us to set the standard for what an inclusive constitutional democracy in the 21st century where everybody's at the table, everybody has a voice, what does that look like? Massachusetts should set the standard.
0: We don't know yet, of course, whether uh, Governor Baker is going to run again. Uh, it's sort of the one of the sort of interesting parlor games being played out, I guess, now is, you know, will he or won't he? But... Um he does seem in some ways like, uh, I, I guess sort of, I was thinking about it, like your polar opposite. He builds himself sort of as They were the, both tall. <laughs> is that right? How tall are you?
1: Well, 5'10", it's true. I'm not tall on the same scale, but well, I, you know, I'm a tall person. That's pretty tall. That, that's,
0: that's pretty tall. <laughs> uh, well, and he, he um, he's a Harvard graduate. You're a Harvard professor. So you've got obviously <laughs> things in common, but I guess what I'm thinking of is, you know, He's always kind of billed as the, you know, and he'll even use this language, I'm I'm just about getting stuff done. And, you know, he's kind of the nuts and bolts manager. He almost sort of as a point of pride sort of says, I don't like to dwell a lot on kind of all these kind of big, big philosophical ideas or visions animating state government. People just want us to, you know, sort of tend to the business at hand. Um, now, you know, it's safe to say you've done a lot of thinking about these broad ideas that animate government structures and how they operate. Um. So I'm just wondering if uh, if you were to end up in a race against uh, Charlie Baker, would this be also in some ways kind of a campaign over how we should think about the role of state government or or just talk about that contrast, regardless of, of how things play out in terms of the personalities here?
1: I think it would be a campaign about how we should think about leadership. I think that we need a combination of leadership and managerial ability. It's a, it's a both and. I don't think management is enough in all honesty. I think we want to be going someplace that matters to have clarity about where we are going and then to also know we have the capacity to lay out the pathway, the timetable, the measurable measurable. Um, outcomes that you're looking for, and then deliver on those original goals. So it's leadership and management. It's also important that management in the context of state government is a democratic process. It's very different from management in a corporate setting or any kind of fully hierarchical vertical setting. So it is as much about coordinating, building coalitions across the whole commonwealth um, ensuring that different jurisdictional levels have the opportunity to build strong collaborations and partnerships—that's a really important part of it, and it's a—it's a, it's an aspect of democratic governance and leadership that I think we often forget about. Don't don't pay enough attention to.
0: And what do you say to folks who might say your ideas are eloquent, your your vision for the state is very uh, uh, compelling, but who would question? You know, what would she know about how to run the Mass Highway Department or sort of, you know, direct, complicated, big operations that sort of maintain our infrastructure or or sort of that deal with, you know, what Baker might call the kind of basic kind of nuts and bolts functioning stuff that's fairly prosaic, but that matters a lot to people.
1: Sure, no of course. I mean, the truth is I have had the chance to run stuff over time. So I got going on that at a relatively young age. At thirty, I was Dean of Humanities at the University of Chicago, which was a sixty million dollar annual budget, two hundred and fifty FTE, and that was an interesting experience. I was I was a young dean as I mentioned, and so as I would sit in the room with, you know, the twelve deans and the president and provost for a weekly meetings, sort of wood paneled rooms, everybody was much older, I was the only um, person of color in the room, one of of two women. And in that um, moment, I realized I would have to really learn how to make space for myself in the conversation, help drive and shape the agenda. And the way I went about um, building up the capacity to do that is I went in and signed up for boxing lessons in the Chicago Housing Projects. So my coach was a guy named Heavy, who was extraordinary, looked just like his name, no teeth, lots of tattoos, and he's one of the best teachers I've ever had. And he did really teach me how to control space, how to understand people's time, get inside people's time. And that was an important set of lessons. It's not my only set of lessons for getting things done. Um, I also, as I mentioned, was a regional field organizer in the 07-08 Obama campaign. And that was really about building coalitions of people to build power, coordinating around common purpose, building out partnerships and coalitions. That's the way I prefer to get things done is pulling people together in order to build power. Um, but I have my boxing lessons in the, in the back pocket. And um, I am a ridiculous lover of the minutiae of bureaucratic uh, practice and procedure of uh, you know, policy wonkiness and the like. Uh, so I, I do bring all those elements together
0: and um uh, how much closer are you to sort of sort of saying i'm in this thing it's it's full speed ahead or what's your time table on that
1: well i'm giving myself till the end of june and we're hard at work we've been running a listening tour around the commonwealth commonwealth conversations I truly believe the job is to knit the whole Commonwealth together into one Commonwealth to bring our regions into visibility. And so we are really trying to listen and learn from those conversations and need to feel that I really have gotten to the point of having a complete picture. And uh, in addition, of course, we're working on, on building a team and really trying to ensure that we have just the top-notch folks across all the different buckets of an operation and feeling good about how that's coming together, but still work in progress. So give myself till the end of June to to really clarify the question.
0: Great. And,
1: um, and I'm just wondering what sort
0: of, you know, conversations you maybe had leading up to this. Um, I, uh, one in particular I wonder about is whether you'd spoken to former Governor Patrick. And I think uh, I, I thought of that uh, because he was somebody who uh, when he first said he was looking at running, people said Deval, who, I mean, he was not, he had a, a very impressive background uh, and track record, but it wasn't in elected politics. He hadn't been involved in Massachusetts politics. Um, you know, people kept saying he came out of nowhere. I mean, he obviously came from somewhere, but he didn't come from the the usual places that we've seen folks emerge. And so in that way, I think you, you share uh, a similar uh, sort of profile. Uh, you know, it's also... True that if you were elected, you would be the second black governor of the Commonwealth uh, sharing that as well. But I'm just wondering, had you uh, uh, among your conversations, is he somebody that you chatted with and sort of did a check with and said, what do you think is about about me doing this?
1: Well, I have been fortunate to know Governor Patrick for a number of years and consider him a friend, and he's a very generous person, as you know. So he's generous to all potential candidates, and he will talk to all candidates, but absolutely his advice is of great value to me. Um, and so I talked to many people, but yes, I certainly did uh, reach out to Governor Patrick for conversation.
0: And did he, was he encouraging
1: I, he was indeed encouraging. As I said, he's very generous to all candidates. I don't want to put him into a box here or into a position, um, but I, I count on his counsel and I'm and grateful for his generosity in offering it to me and to many others.
0: Great. Well, listen, Daniel Allen, I want to thank you so much for your time. Um, it was great to hear more about you, about your run, about your background. I hope we'll have a chance to speak again going forward.
1: Likewise. Thank you. No great questions. I really appreciate it.
0: And thanks to you all for listening. This has been another episode of the CODcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. We'll see you next time.